What's up, y'all? This is John Lorenz with Anesthesia Guidebook. This podcast is part of a six-part series coming to you from Ashley Scheel and Skylar Ruschling. At the time of these recordings in April of 2019, Ashley and Skylar were second-year SRNAs at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. They worked with me to produce these six shows, three from each of them, as part of their doctorates in anesthesia at Marion. Ashley and Skylar wanted to create shows that would be helpful to new anesthesia trainees, and I think they hit it out of the park with these podcasts. The six topics we cover are clinical flow from pre-op through intubation, a rundown on the anesthesia machine, the pharmacokinetics of volatile anesthetics, the pharmacodynamics of volatile anesthetics, common IV induction agents, and a rundown on local anesthetics. I think these shows are a great introduction for new anesthesia learners and will also serve as a pretty solid review for seasoned providers. Ashley Scheel earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012, and she worked as a critical care registered nurse in the surgical ICU at the Rudabash VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years prior to going back to anesthesia school. Skylar Ruschling attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. She went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to anesthesia school. She was married in 2018 and subsequently has changed her name to Skylar Williams. Since these shows were recorded, Ashley and Skylar have completed their doctorates at Marion, graduating in May of 2020, and successfully passed boards as CRNAs. As of September 2021, when these shows are being published on Anesthesia Guidebook, Dr. Scheel and Dr. Williams both work as CRNAs at IU Health Arnett Hospital in Lafayette, Indiana. You'll hear from both of them before we jump into the show. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, so we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled Podcast as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education. Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, We're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, We really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. All right. Well, Skylar, I'm so stoked to chat with you about volatile anesthetics. And what aspect of that do you want to chat about today? All right, yeah, today we're going to talk about the pharmacokinetics with the volatile anesthetics. And pharmacokinetics, if you remember from your farm class, it means that it's the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination of a drug. That's awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, we're going to talk all about um, those different concepts today. And first, I just wanted to talk about a few concepts that Ashley talked about in her podcast about the anesthesia machine. Um, There are a few factors she brought up that do have to deal with how an uh, an inhalational gas behaves, and those were vapor pressure, boiling point, and partial pressure. So we'll just touch again on those real quick. And vapor pressure, it's directly related to temperature. So as temperature rises, it's more likely that the liquid will enter into the gases phase and increase the vapor pressure. 
And then boiling point is when that vapor pressure is equal to the atmospheric pressure. And remember that desflurane, it has that very low boiling point of 22 degrees Celsius, which is why it has to be stored in the temperature-controlled vaporizer, and that's to prevent desflurane from boiling at room temperature, which is around 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. And then partial pressure is what determines a volatile agent's concentration-dependent effects in the brain. Again, the variable bypass vaporizers account for changes in partial pressure with altitude, but the Tech 6 for desflurane does not. So with those, you have to make sure you increase your concentration by turning up the dial in the Tech 6 vaporizer so that you don't underdose the patient if you're in a um, situation where there is an increased altitude and the partial pressure will be affected. So just wanted to touch on those again to jog your memory a little bit from Ashley's podcast. And now we'll go into talking about the absorption, distribution, and metabolism and elimination of the inhalational anesthetics. That sounds great. Let's get to it. All right. So there's factors that control absorption of an anesthetic, and those are the blood gas solubility, FAFI ratios, and the oil gas solubility. So these concepts, they're very foundational to the practice of anesthesia because they explain how and why we administer the volatile anesthetics in the way that we do. Okay, so first we'll talk about the blood gas solubility. And the blood gas solubility, it's described as a number or a blood gas solubility coefficient. And it tells us about the speed of uptake, distribution, and elimination of the volatile anesthetic. So there's the blood portion and the gas portion. And the blood portion, it reflects how much of the anesthetic will be soluble in the blood versus the gas portion that's going to leave the blood and then diffuse into the tissues. So um, because of these two portions, the blood gas coefficient should be viewed as a ratio. And we can look at sevoflurane for an example. So for sevoflurane, the blood gas coefficient is 0.6. So that means that the ratio is 0.6 to 1. And then you can also say it as for every 0.6 molecules um, of the anesthetic that stays in the blood, there's going to be one molecule that enters the tissues. So... um, Taking that ratio, now we have to understand what the solubility actually means for the inhalational anesthetic. And what it means is that the more soluble an anesthetic is, um, or the higher the blood gas coefficient, it's going to make it a slower onset um, for that anesthetic. And it seems a little bit counterintuitive um, to talk about having a higher solubility but a slower onset, but we'll talk about why that's the case. So what happens is, in order for a volatile anesthetic to take effect, it has to build up a concentration in the tissues, like in the brain and the alveoli. And if a volatile anesthetic has a high blood gas solubility, it's going to get more quickly taken up into the blood because of how soluble it is, making it harder for it to build up tissue concentrations um, because it's staying in the blood rather than diffusing into the tissues, which then slows the onset. And um, again, we'll, we'll keep talking about this concept a couple more times throughout the podcast. So if you're not um, grasping it just yet, don't worry, we'll, we'll bring it up a couple more times. And then so on the reverse side of that, um, if a volatile anesthetic has a low blood gas solubility um, and a low blood gas coefficient, it's going to produce anesthesia much more rapidly. So I'll go over the blood gas coefficients, and they're going to vary slightly depending on the uh, source that you're looking at. These were pulled from Nagelhout. So desflurane is 0.42. It has the lowest blood gas coefficient, so it's the least soluble, and therefore it should be the fastest. Um, There's a little caveat to this that has to do with the concentration effect that we'll talk about in a minute, but um, for simplicity right now, 0.42, lowest blood gas coefficient, so it's the least soluble and the fastest. 
Nitrous oxide is 0.47, zerofluorine is 0.6, and isofluorine is 1.4. It has the highest blood gas coefficient, so it's the most soluble, making it the slowest. And so we've talked about blood gas solubility and how it's inversely related to the speed of onset. So now we'll talk about the FAFI ratios and how those play into it. FAFI ratios, they explain how fast an anesthetic will build up partial pressures in the alveoli. And we take this information and we relate it to how fast the partial pressures of the anesthetic will build up in the brain to produce anesthesia. So the FA part of it is the fractional concentration of the alveolar anesthetic, which is just the amount of anesthetic that's in the alveoli. And it's determined by uptake, ventilation, concentration effect, and the second gas effect, which we'll go into in just a minute. And FI is the fractional concentration of inspired anesthetic, and it's the amount that's being delivered. And that's determined by your fresh gas flows, your breathing circuit volume, the circuit absorption, and whatever you have the vaporizer dial set to. So because we can't actually measure the anesthetic partial pressures in the brain, um, we have the concentrations in the alveoli that we can measure, and we just assume them to be the same as what's in the brain. And the reason that we can assume this is because inhalational anesthetics are all highly lipid-soluble and diffusible, so theoretically, they should have the same concentrations in all highly perfused body compartments like the um, brain and alveoli. So if we connect this back to what we just talked about with the blood gas solubility and speed of onset, the more soluble an anesthetic, the faster the uptake into the bloodstream, but this is going to reduce the concentration in the alveoli, and therefore we have to think that it's reducing the concentration in the brain as well, and that's why it slows the onset of anesthesia. And if an agent is less soluble, its uptake into the bloodstream is going to be slower, and therefore the concentration in the alveoli and brain is going to be higher, and you're going to have a faster onset of anesthesia. So to summarize the two concepts together, the rate of rise depicted through the FAFI ratio, along with solubility, is going to help to determine how fast on and off an anesthetic will be. So again, if it's a low solubility, you'll have a faster rise of your FAFI ratio and a fast on and off effect of the anesthetic. And if you have a high solubility, it's going to be a slow rise of the FAFI ratio and a slow on and off effect of the anesthetic. And there are factors that affect the rise of the FAFI. So we'll go into those. Um, fresh gas flow rate is directly proportional to the FAFI ratio. So the higher your fresh gas flows are set at, um, the quicker the rise of the FAFI. And this is just because the more fresh gas you have pushing the volatile anesthetic from the vaporizer to the alveoli, um, the quicker the concentration of the gas in the alveoli will rise. And um, solubility, we've talked about this multiple times already. It's inversely proportional. So if you have a high blood gas solubility, the faster the uptake of the anesthetic into the bloodstream, which is going to slow the rate of rise of your FAFI, meaning that it's going to take longer for the concentration of the anesthetic to rise in the alveoli. And again, we're always thinking of brain when we think of the alveoli, which is going to lead to a slow onset and offset of your anesthetic and vice versa. All right, and then for ventilation, it's going to be directly proportional. So this just means the faster your minute ventilation, the faster the rate of rise of your FAFI. So this makes sense. The faster you're breathing, the more gas you're taking in, and the concentration in the alveoli can rise more quickly. And this is also why pediatrics go to sleep faster than adults because they have an increased alveolar ventilation per weight. And cardiac output, it's inversely proportional. 
And this can be a little bit of a confusing concept to wrap your head around. Um, so I'll summarize it first and then we'll go into the details of it. So the higher your cardiac output, the slower the rate of rise of your FAFI, which results in a slower anesthetic onset, which seems counterintuitive. So let's explain why this happens. So if you have a higher cardiac output, you're going to have blood circulating at a faster rate, and it's going to be picking up that anesthetic gas from the alveoli, and it's going to make it harder for that partial pressure of the anesthetic gas to rise in the alveoli. So because the blood keeps picking up gas and taking it away and picking up gas and taking it away at a fast rate, the alveolar concentration cannot rise as quickly. And this is where we have to remember again that that means that the brain concentrations cannot rise as quickly as well. So you're going to have a slower anesthetic onset. And on the other hand of that, if you have a lower cardiac output and the blood is moving slowly through circulation, it's not going to pick up the gas and take it away as quickly so you're going to have more time to build up concentrations in the alveoli, which is going to lead to a faster onset. So again, if you have a high cardiac output, it's going to be picking up that gas and taking it away from the alveoli, leading to a slow onset. And then if you have a low cardiac output, it's not taking up um, that gas into the blood as quickly, so the concentration can rise in the alveoli, leading to a fast onset. So hopefully that connects um, the cardiac output and the FAFI um, ratios and why it's inversely proportional. It's all about having time to build up those partial pressures in the alveoli and then in, therefore the brain as well. And just to note, pregnant women, they have a higher cardiac output, so a slower uptake, but they also have a higher minute ventilation, which will be a fast uptake. So those two concepts counteract each other, and that's just something to know for boards or a test if those two concepts are brought up together. And then concentration it's directly proportional. So the higher concentration, the faster the rate of rise of your FAFI, uh, which makes sense. Um, but remember earlier when I talked about desflurane, um, it has the lowest blood gas coefficient. So theoretically, it should be the fastest. But um, actually, it's not nitrous oxide. It's in fact the fastest because, uh, because of the concentration effect. So the concentration effect is explained simply by the more you give, the faster it works. But what's actually happening is if you're increasing the concentration that you're administering and the rate of uptake from the blood is not changed, so your cardiac output's not changed, the alveolar concentration is going to rise at a faster rate than what's getting taken up by the blood. And this leads to a higher alveolar concentration achieved more quickly. And remember, this means that the bra uh, concentration in the brain is uh, rising quickly as well. So um, you're going to have a quicker effect. And the reason that it's only clinically significant with nitrous oxide is because nitrous oxide is given at such high concentrations to compensate for its low potency, which we'll discuss more in a minute. But um, So nitrous oxide, its blood gas is 0.47, and remember desflurane is 0.42. Um, so nitrous oxide it has a low blood gas, but it also has a very low potency, which is why it's given at those high concentrations. So it makes it unique and allows for this concentration effect to occur. And in addition to the concentration effect uh, with nitrous oxide, you can also get the second gas effect, which occurs by administering a slower, more soluble anesthetic with nitrous oxide. And what happens is the nitrous oxide builds up concentrations very quickly due to its low solubility and high concentrations that it's delivered at. And if you deliver it along with a more soluble anesthetic, which is typically slower, that second gas is going to be carried with the nitrous oxide and build up concentrations more quickly as well, leading to a faster onset for that more soluble anesthetic. 
And again, this is unique to nitrous oxide because of its very low blood gas solubility of 0.47 and its low potency. And just to note with the second gas effect, it only really works well with um, slower, more soluble anesthetics like isofluorine. Um, it's not really going to cause any effect with a more soluble um, anesthetic like desfluorine because it's already fast, so you're not really going to um, see much of a difference um, by adding nitrous oxide to it. And lastly, with the FAFI ratios, is VQ mismatch. Um, a way to explain how VQ mismatch affects the FAFI ratio is to talk about a right-to-left shunt. And a right-to-left shunt can cause a decrease in the rate of rise of the FAFI, and this is because unoxygenated blood is bypassing the lungs, so therefore it's bypassing that uptake of the anesthetic gas. So when the um, shunted blood from the right side of the heart mixes with the blood on the left side of the heart that has been oxygenated and exposed to anesthetic gas, it dilutes the blood traveling to the tissues. It dilutes um, the anesthetic content of it. Um, so it slows the rate of rise of your FAFI ratio. And uh, a soluble agent with a higher blood gas solubility is going to be least affected by a right-to-left shunt. And that's because uh, more of the volatile agent is getting picked up in the lungs because it has a higher solubility. It brings more of it into the uh, circulation. And so the dilutional effect of the shunt is reduced when it combines with that um, unoxygenated blood from the right side that was not exposed to an anesthetic gas. And then if the agent is relatively insoluble, less agents getting picked up in the lungs uh, because it's not as soluble, it's not bringing it into the blood as quickly. So the dilutional effect of the shunt is going to be much more profound. And um, so this occurs with right-to-left shunts, and a left-to-right shunt is not going to have any effect on the VQ um, and the FAFI connection. It's just the right-to-left shunt that cause, causes the issues. Well, Skylar, I think you've done a really good job explaining uh, the factors that contribute to FAFI and also just the core factors around um, blood gas solubility. I can remember when I was uh, just getting started in anesthesia that blood gas solubility and the rate of onset for anesthetics, volatile anesthetics, was very confusing because I kept wanting to think of them as if they were an IV anesthetic, which would be, you know, the more you give, the quicker it's in the bloodstream, the faster it's to the brain, and, and then that's better. But for me, what I really anchored onto, what helped me understand this the best is just to remember that what is in the lung is what's in the brain. So, you know, if something takes uh, the volatile anesthetic out of the lung more quickly, then that's going to reduce the concentration of the lung, which is going to reduce the concentration of the brain. Right. Yeah, I agree. It was really confusing when I first learned it as well. And that's why I really wanted to bring that point home of just think of the, when you're thinking of the lungs and the alveoli, think of the brain, like you said. And I think that'll um, get you through um, thinking through most of the situations. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So what else uh, do we want to chat about with the volatile anesthetics? All right, so still on absorption, we're going to talk about the oil gas solubility and how it relates to potency. So um, the blood gas solubility that we've already talked about, that determines the speed of onset. But the oil gas solubility is going to determine how much of an anesthetic can penetrate a lipid membrane to exert its effects. And a highly lipid-soluble drug is going to have a more um, potent effect because it can cross the blood-brain barrier much more efficiently. So oil gas solubility is determining the potency. And the higher the oil gas solubility, the higher your oil gas coefficient, the more potent the drug is. And again, I'll go through these coefficients, and they may vary slightly from um, other sources, but these were taken from Nagelhout. 
So isofluorine is 99. It has the highest oil gas solubility, so it's the most potent. Sevofluorine is 50. Desfluorine is 18.7. And nitrous oxide is 1.4. It has the lowest oil gas solubility because it's the least potent, which is why we said it's able to achieve that concentration effect and second gas effect. And oil gas solubility is inversely proportional to MAC, which is the minimum alveolar concentration. And we're going to go into MAC a little bit more in depth in the next episode when we talk about the pharmacodynamics of the volatile anesthetics. Um, But in short, so an agent with a high oil gas solubility, like isofluorine, its oil gas solubility is 99. It has a low MAC value. It's MAC 1.15. So that means it's so potent that it only needs to be delivered at very low concentrations to accomplish adequate anesthesia. Whereas desflurane, on the other hand, has a much lower oil gas solubility. It's 18.7, and therefore it has a much higher MAC. It's MAX 5.8. Um, so you'll need much more desflurane to accomplish adequate anesthesia than you would isoflurane due to the potency of it. So... We'll move on from talking about absorption and talk about distribution now. And distribution is all related to the tissue perfusion. So distribution varies throughout the body because tissue perfusion is obviously not the same in all body compartments. The vessel-rich group of the body only makes up 10% of the body, but it receives 75% of our cardiac output. So that means that this group is going to receive the anesthetic first. And obviously, this is the heart, lungs brain, liver, and kidneys. And then the longer the anesthetic is administered, you'll have the saturation of the other body compartments, um, like the muscle and then the fat. So muscle is 50% of the body and receives 19% of our cardiac output, and fat is 20% of body weight and only receives 6% of the cardiac output. So because cardiac output is distributing the anesthetic, That means that fat is going to be the last to saturate and is also the last to release the anesthetic during emergence as well. So this is why an obese patient will hold on to anesthetic longer, especially as the duration of the case increases. And some providers, they prefer using desflurane in this case because it's less lipid soluble and has that low blood gas solubility. So you're going to have a faster recovery and it's going to um, be able to come off a lot faster during emergence than another agent would be able to. Yeah, Skylar, I think that's great info. I think that um, on the flip side, you can consider isofluorine. Isofluorine is very cheap. It has a low MAC value because of its high potency. So you can use less of it over a long case because you're not having to deliver very much of it in terms of actual volume of isofluorine. But it's also very lipid soluble. So it has a high oil gas solubility. So in a long case, sometimes folks choose isofluorine because it's an inexpensive gas and you're using less of it over, say, a four, six, or eight-hour case. However, remember, in obese patients, because of its high oil gas solubility, it diffuses into the adipose tissue at a much higher rate than desflurane or SIBO, and an obese patient may hold on to iso longer due to its high oil gas solubility. So it's not that you should avoid it in an obese patient, but it's part of the art of anesthesia and developing a sense for how long it will take ISO to come off. So someone may need to reduce their isofluorine concentration earlier than you would if you were, say, using desflurane or maybe a combination of nitrous oxide and sevofluorine or something like that. All right. Yeah, that's a good point to make. Thank you. Okay. So we've talked about the absorption and we've talked about the distribution. Let's wrap up by um, talking about the metabolism and elimination. 
And when inhalational anesthetics are eliminated, it's mostly through the alveolus um, during exhalation, and they're really only minimally metabolized by the liver. Sevoflurane of all of them is the most metabolized at 5 to 8%, and then desflurane, isoflurane, and nitrous oxide, they're all metabolized only less than 1%. Um, even though sevoflurane is metabolized the most, um, it produces a serum fluoride um, when it's metabolized, but it's not enough to be proven to be toxic. So therefore, it's really not even clinically significant. It may just be important to know for tests or boards that sevoflurane is the most metabolized um, of all the volatile anesthetics. And um, also when talking about elimination, there is a phenomenon I want to mention. It's called diffusion hypoxia. And this occurs with nitrous oxide. And it occurs with nitrous oxide because we know that nitrous oxide is fast and it's diffused throughout the body very quickly. Um, so if you're administering it during a case and then um, at the end during emergence, it's turned off. Uh, the large amount of nitrous oxide that has saturated and filled all those gas compartments and tissues and now all rushes to the lungs to be exhaled. So this causes a dilution of the oxygen and carbon dioxide that's in the alveoli and it's known as diffusion hypoxia. So it can cause hypoxia, which obviously is not ideal during emergence. And it's not a reason not to use nitrous oxide during emergence because many providers do like the addition of nitrous oxide at the end of the case because um, it can reduce your anesthetic concentration of um, whatever agent you were using at the time. And also because the second gas effect, it can help increase the offset of that other agent as well. So um, this is definitely not a reason not to use nitrous oxide, but it's just something to be aware of. Um, if it were to occur, you can just administer 100% FiO2 for three to five minutes during that time, or just ensure that you're using a high FiO2 concentration while you're um, using that nitrous oxide to reduce the risk of diffusion hypoxia. Yeah, that's a that's a great point on diffusion hypoxia. So yeah, I think a lot of folks will will pull out nitrous and mix that in with their anesthetic gas. It allows you to reduce your concentration. Say you're doing a case with sevoflurane for a couple of hours, and the surgeon starts to close. You know, add on nitrous oxide to the effect of about you know fifty to seventy percent equates to a doubling of whatever your entitled concentration of the primary volatile anesthetic is. So for instance, if you were running SIBO at two and you wanted to reduce your SIBO fluorine concentration towards the end of the case and speed emergence, you could turn on nitrous oxide to 50 to 70% and then you would be able to reduce your SIBO fluorine down to theoretically say an entitled concentration of one, you would still be at a full MAC value. And then you could reduce your concentration further uh, as you get closer to emergence. And then once you finally shut off the gas, turn up your flows, because you've got that higher concentration of nitrous oxide with its blood gas solubility coefficient being very favorable for a fast um, offset, then your whole emergence process goes much quicker. Right, yeah, that's a good explanation, thank you. Um, lastly, I just want to go over the primary values that we talked about. Um, in the podcast, the vapor pressure, your blood gas and oil gas coefficients, um, and then also the MAC values, the percent metabolism, and also fluoride count. So I, I did say the MAC will go into a little bit deeper in the next podcast of pharmacodynamics, but we'll mention them here real quick again. And the fluoride count is just a simple way to identify volatile anesthetics on exam if you're given the chemical structure. 
So you don't have to memorize the entire chemical structure. You just have to, if you know the number of fluorides that's in each, you can easily uh, differentiate the chemical structures from each other. So we'll start off with vapor pressure, and this is at 20 degrees Celsius. So nitrous oxide, it's, it doesn't have a vapor pressure at this point because it exists as a gas at this temperature. Pseudofluorine is going to be 157. Isofluorine is 238, and desfluorine is 669. Remember, it has that really high vapor pressure and a low boiling point, which is why it needs that special vaporizer so it doesn't boil at room temperature. Blood gas for nitrous oxide is 0.47. Pseudofluorine is 0.6. Isofluorine is 1.4. It has the highest blood gas coefficient, meaning it's the slowest. Desfluorine is 0.42. It has the lowest blood gas coefficient, uh, so theoretically, it should be the fastest, but we know that it's nitrous oxide because of the concentration effect. Oil gas for nitrous oxide is 1.4. It has the lowest oil gas because it's least potent. SIVO is 50. Isofluorine is 99. It has the highest oil gas because it's the most potent. And desfluorine is 18.7. MAC for nitrous oxide is 105. It has a, the highest MAC because it's uh, the least potent. SIVOfluorine is 2. Isofluorine is 1.15. It has the lowest MAC because it's the uh, most potent. Desfluorine is 5.8. Fluoride count for nitrous oxide, it doesn't have any fluorides. Sevofluorine is 7. Uh, I just like to remember it. Sevo, 7, kind of sounds the same. Isofluorine is 5. Desfluorine is 6. And you can remember that because it has this text 6 vaporizer. And percent metabolism, SIVO is 5 to 8%, and nitrous oxide, isofluorine, and desfluorine is all less than 1%. That's awesome, Skylar. Uh, now, I know some people might be squirming in their seats uh, <laughs> or running on the treadmill or whatever at some of those values being different from whatever text you may have read them in, right, exactly. uh, in speaking to the listeners. So just, just remember that the core textbooks of anesthesia, uh, Nagelhout, Miller, Bearish, all of these, they may speak of these a little bit differently in terms of the exact value, but generally speaking, you're going to be pretty close. So, you know, for instance, the MAC value of Desflurane and Miller is listed at six and Nagelhout at 5.8. So, you know, you're going to be able to figure that out on an exam. And more importantly, for the practical application of these things, it's uh, their relationship to one another in the concepts of how that influences the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of uh, the volatile anesthetic. So nice job running through all those numbers. Right. Yeah. So as long as you have your numbers that you're used to looking at and memorize, like you said, as long as you can connect them to each other, they're going to make sense. Um, doesn't matter if they're, you know, point one off from what the other book is saying. Uh, they all have the same concepts connected to them. And yeah, that's all I have for the um, pharmacokinetics. And I hope that it helped the listeners with uh, these basic concepts and it really does help as you progress through clinical and then the rest of your anesthesia career to just really know these foundational concepts and um, will help you in your practice. Yeah, Skylar, nice job. What a great rundown on the pharmacokinetics, uptake, distribution, metabolism, and elimination of volatile anesthetics. Nice job. Thanks. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.